as we see some of our children leave there, just reminds us that there are all sorts of things going on over on that side of the building as we are in here this morning worshiping God together. And so we just praise God that we have the opportunity as a church and as parents to teach these children the gospel, to teach them the whole counsel of Scripture. And what a blessing uh, to think that God is applying His grace over there with those little hearts and then little hearts in here and big hearts today as we gather to worship Him. I hope you've had a good week and it is a blessing to gather again and to dig into God's Word together. That's what we do here as a local church. When we come to this portion of our service, this is the instruction portion. And so uh, the desire we have is to get into the Scriptures and understand what God says to us there. I was recently listening to uh, uh, Al Mohler talk about some of, the, uh, some of the kind of weird things that we see among American Christians. And particularly, he was, he was identifying an instance of, uh, of someone saying, you know, they had talked with God and God had told them to do something or not to do something or did not tell them not to do something. And, you know, that's the kind of Christian culture that we find around us is this very subjective way of supposedly hearing from the Lord. And what we know as Christians is that we hear from the Lord through His Word. And so that's why we come this morning and take it so seriously. And if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We are in verses 1 to 5 today. One of the advantages of walking through a biblical book sequentially is that we get to see how the different sections and subsections of the book relate to one another. We get to see uh, how individual units within the book as a whole connect. They're not just isolated topics. Here's one idea. Okay, we closed the chapter on that. Here's another idea. Okay, there you go. Here's another. But we get to see the ways in which, and it really is plural, the ways in which these things fit together. We get to track the progression of thought within a book. And this is particularly exciting, I think, for us with the book of Romans, which has been probably the most celebrated book in the history of Christianity, uh, the most famous book. I mean, that's arguable, right? You could say maybe John and uh, maybe, in, in maybe Matthew in certain periods, certain segments of, of the church throughout history. But Romans in particular has stood out as a book of great significance. And so it is with great joy that we, that we walk through these different units within the book so that we can understand the progression of the apostle's thought as he unfolds for us the gospel that he preaches. And if you want to know what Romans is about, kind of in the big, in the big picture, go back to chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is what Romans is about. It is about the gospel. We have the gospel explained for us, described for us in various books all over the New Testament. In fact, that is what the New Testament is about. But Romans gives us the most extensive description of that gospel. And so as we go through it, we are seeing the progression of thought as the apostle unpacks the gospel. And I think what we are seeing as we do this is the logic of the gospel. Have you ever thought in those terms that there is a, an internal logic to the gospel? It's not just an idea to sort of put up on a, on a board. It's not just a, a, a slogan. There is an internal logic to the gospel. And it's important that we understand the way the various internal parts of the gospel fit together. Another way to think about this is that there are different aspects of the gospel. And so as we get 
the gospel uh, logically, progressively unpacked, not only are we seeing the internal logic of it, how the various parts are connected sequentially, but we're also seeing the different facets of the diamond. We're seeing the different things to give God praise for. We're seeing the different realities that are ours in Christ. We're growing in our understanding of our own experiences as Christian people. So today we come to a new chapter with a new focus that naturally, in light of what I just said before, naturally and logically grows out of what has gone before. We saw a similar transition at the beginning of chapter 5. When we moved from chapter 4 to chapter 5, we saw a very clear, logical transition. We have been discussing, you remember, justification by faith. That is Paul's big theme in chapters 1 to 4. And we remember that in order to unpack that doctrine, he had to describe for some time sin. Because we are justified, made right with God, and Our sin is forgiven. We are pardoned. We are made right when we don't deserve to be made right. We are sinners who are are undeservedly made right with God. And so a big part of that was the description of our sinfulness and our condemnation. Justification has replaced that condemnation. So that took us all the way up through the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5 opens like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, dot, dot, dot. Do you see that? So, so Paul goes into chapter 5, and he is very clearly and logically building on that entire package of ideas that he's given us in chapters 1 to 4. Since all of that is true, and then he's opening up a new door. So I, I entitled my first sermon in that chapter, The Results of Right Standing. Essentially, what we have going on when we enter chapter 5 are the results of our justification by faith. Paul gives us the doctrine of justification and then follows that with the results. And he tells us exactly what he's doing. He tells us that he's doing that in the very first verse of chapter 5. Well, something similar is happening today as we enter into chapter 6. So we're coming to a new chapter today. And the end of chapter 5 is all about assuring believers of their security. Now that they have moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. So really chapter 5 is a big assurance chapter. And we know that that's really the theme of all of chapters 5 to 8. Because of the way chapter 8 ends. But chapter 5 in particular. Has the desire, has the concern. Or Paul in writing that chapter. Has the concern of assuring believers. That they are secure. Now that they have been moved from being in Adam. To being now in Christ. Through the one man Adam, human beings were condemned and placed under the rule of death. Were and are those who are still in Adam, that still stands. But through the one man, Jesus Christ, there is justification and reigning in life. Adam compared with Christ. That's where we ended last week. The big idea, the free gift of God through Christ has overshadowed, overcome, and overwhelmed sin. This is super abounding grace. I mean, every Christian, when you get to the end of chapter 5, you are just celebrating. You are clapping your hands. You're wanting to start writing some new hymns, writing some new, some of you maybe, more so than others. But you're celebrating. It is, chapter 5 ends on an incredibly celebratory note. It overcomes sin and death. Grace, God's free gift of grace, overcomes sin and death. And even where the Mosaic law 
had come along to increase sin. Verse 20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Powerful, mighty, relentless grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Maybe you did not grow up in church, or maybe you did not grow up in a church that sang hymns, but I had the privilege of growing up in a church that did. And so these, these, these hymns are just embedded in the, in the marrow of my bones. I've been hearing them since I was three years old, spacing out in church as a five, six-year-old kid, uh, but still absorbing these wonderful words, these hymns in response to the scriptures. This hymn in particular in response to, or that chorus there from a hymn, in response to these truths of Romans 5. That's where we're left after last week. So, if grace has beat up and done away with sin guilt, if grace has done away with condemnation before a holy God, then how should the believer now think about sin and sinning? Grace, grace, grace. We celebrate, but now Paul wants us to think In response to that truth, how do we think now about sin and sinning? That's where Paul goes in chapter 6 as he opens with this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Chapter 5 ends with abounding grace. Now Paul asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So I've entitled the sermon this morning, Abounding Grace, What Now for Sin? Abounding grace, that's a fact. That's stamped into our psyche. It is stamped into our identity. It is the truth of the gospel. What now for sin? So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. Romans 6, verses 1 to 5. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for his people. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised... From the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Praise God. Go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and just thank God for his word and ask his help. Ask for his help as we come now to study it that he would give us understanding and clarity, that he would help me to be clear, and that we would leave here having heard, having really heard from the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We recognize, Lord, that you are a God who speaks, and you speak through Scripture. It is sufficient to make us fully equipped, ready for every good work. It revives the soul, rejoices the heart, makes wise the simple. It is more precious than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey. By it, we are warned. We are kept straight in Christ. We are are guided and guarded. We are preserved by means of your word. Sanctify them 
Jesus prayed to you, Father, for us, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so, Lord, we come now to just immerse ourselves for this period of time in your word. Would you ready our minds? Would you help us to think clearly? But, Lord, would you help us to be impacted? Would you impact us with it at the deepest parts of our heart, Lord? Would you show us our sin and show us the abounding grace in Christ that gives us assurance and security? And would you call us and pull us and beckon us to holiness of life, to love of neighbor and especially to love of one another? God, would we glorify you as people who live before your face, in your presence, who walk with you as we read of Enoch, as we read of Noah and Abraham. And throughout the Bible, Lord, we, as your people, have your spirit in us. We pray that we would walk with you this day, this week, and that these words this morning from your word would would enable us to do that, that we would receive strength by this, and that your Spirit would use this time to help us live the Christian life. I pray for anyone among us this morning, from uh, children all the way to adult, uh, older adult, all the way up, Lord, that you would convert sinners to yourself, that you would move people this morning by your grace, by your sovereign grace, from being in Adam to being in Christ. Lord, we love you and we are so thankful for this time. We worship you through Christ our Lord and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So two things to occupy our attention this morning as Paul unpacks the relationship of believers to sin. How does the believer relate to? Think about sin. So two things here. These are our two points for this morning. First, bad theology. And second, vivid imagery. That is what Paul gives us. He himself does not give us the bad theology. But first, he exposes bad theology. And second, he gives some vivid imagery. So those two points will help us to get into the text. And by the way, let me just say this. The points are meant only to do that. Uh, They are meant to to sort of extract, just as the title is, they're meant to extract what's here. Our objective is to see what is here in this passage and understand what Paul meant under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to understand and deal with and apply what Paul meant. And so, abounding grace, what now for sin, bad theology, vivid Imagery. So let's start with bad theology. Sometimes when you read an epistle, it is hard to, desert, to determine exactly what or who is in the background. And this is one of the things that commentators try to do because authorial intent, that is the intention of the author, is so important to discovering the meaning. In fact, that is the meaning. As we're looking at Scripture, we want to understand what did the writer mean, and part of that is understanding what's going on in the background to the writer writing this particular letter. And so we get this so clear for us in a a letter like Galatians, where there are clear, clearly delineated things going on in the background. Or 1 Corinthians, same thing. There are some real issues, clearly defined issues going on in the background. Romans is a little different in that respect because it is this extensive description of Paul's theology. There are uh, places where you can read the context in the text, but it's a little more difficult to determine exactly what's going on in the background. So when Paul begins in verse 1 with this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We don't really know the extent to which this question was being asked by those in Rome. Is there a little faction of people asking this sort of question or saying this sort of thing in the city of Rome? 
uh, in the city in general, in the churches, the little house churches uh, gathered in particular, maybe one or two of these little gatherings, but the majority not so much. Maybe a particular elder over some of these gatherings or maybe uh, some folks within or underneath one of the elders or several of the elders in those churches. It's just unclear to what extent this has rooted itself in Rome. But regardless of its presence there, Paul certainly encountered this sort of question in the course of his ministry. This is the kind of thing that would be asked of Paul or that would be said to Paul as he is preaching the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. And remember, when Paul writes Romans, he's at the end of his ministry in the east, and so he's leaning towards the west. And that's why he tells the Roman Christians that he wants to come to them. They're in the west. He wants to come to them and get help for his ministry later in Spain. So he's just going to go further west. So Paul, by this point, has had a lot of ministry. And so undoubtedly, this question has arisen many times. And by introducing this question, Paul is dealing with two things. So you can write these down if you would like. This is where we're headed. But Paul is dealing with two things As he introduces this question, first, an objection to his gospel. So that's the first thing. Embedded in this question is an objection to his gospel, in one sense. And second, a false teaching based on his gospel. So you have to see his two sides here as he introduces this question. As he introduces this bad theology, there are actually two different forms of bad theology represented in this question. So an objection to his gospel, and second, a false teaching based on his gospel. So here's what I mean. There are two kinds of wrong-headed responses to Paul's celebration of abounding grace in chapter 5. After you've come out of chapter 5, reader, there are two bad directions you can go in. There are two pits that you can fall into. Two forms of bad theology. So let's look at the first one. First, there is the response of the legalist. The response of the legalist who says, Paul, come on, man. Your whole grace theology does nothing but promote sin. All this grace stuff, all this talk of God's grace in Christ, all this free gift stuff, all this abounding grace stuff does nothing but promote sin. Paul, look. Here's where your gospel is fundamentally flawed. It gives people license to sin and even encourages them to do so because it magnifies grace and unleashes it to abound. Fundamental problem with your gospel, Paul. What we need, says this person, with this form of bad theology... What we need is law. Let's go back to law, Paul. What we need is law, a religion focused on law and law keeping. That's how sin is dealt with. That's how sin is put in check. But this whole grace stuff, this whole emphasis on free gift and grace does nothing but promote sin. So that's one response that a person could have to reading chapter 5 or hearing this portion of Paul's proclamation. For this person, abounding grace must mean by necessity. You cannot have it otherwise. Abounding grace must mean continuing sin. It must. There's a disjuncture here between grace and And the the life we need to live. You can't have both, Paul. 
Abounding grace means license to sin. That's the legalist. And so something over and above the gospel needs to be inserted. Something else. And we saw this, we see this in Galatians. Yeah, okay, believe in Christ. He's the Messiah. That's fine. But you better be circumcised, right? Gospel of of grace in Christ, sins. Okay, good, good. But you also better make sure you're circumcised because you got to have that too in order to be right with God. So maybe it could even go there. Something over and above the gospel needs to be inserted. This is the first form of bad theology that the apostle is addressing by asking this question. And by the way, we see this in some Christian circles. And there are, there are, there's a spectrum of this sort of thing, right? Christian circles where do's and don'ts crowd out the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace in Christ is the message of Christianity. That's it. That is the message of Christianity. It is not moral reform, though there is much to be said about that. It is not do this and don't do that, regulations and so forth. The message of Christianity is the gospel, the good news of free grace through Christ Jesus. That is the message of Christianity. And yet, in some Christian circles, that is either lost or at least minimized or overshadowed by do's and don'ts, regulations. And let me say this. That's not to say... I think this needs to be said for sure, that procedures, policies, uh, regulations within the church, even the, that scary word rules, which we hate from the time we're two, are anathema. It is not to say that procedures and policies and regulations and rules within gospel community groups and churches are contrary to the gospel of grace in Christ. That would be folly. That would be folly. We know that there are these structures in place in every area of human life. Cannot have anarchy within church and call that grace practice. We know that do's and don'ts are sometimes a part of church life. And the way we regulate and the way we govern the various operations within a church. But it is to say that it is easy for the Christian gospel of grace in Christ to be overshadowed by such things in such a way that you begin to fall into this trap of being a legalist. And that is one person Paul addresses here. This is an objection to Paul's gospel that we've already seen in chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. In other words, in that context, the focus is on God being shown faithful to his word and being glorified even in Israel's sinful rejection. So you remember, you got to go back in your mind to the beginning of chapter 3. Israel has rejected Christ. Israel has rejected God. And yet God has shown himself nonetheless faithful to his word of judgment. And so God's truth has shone forth and been magnified through the lie The unfaithfulness of his people. Sin resulting in God being glorified. Through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. And so some 
were accusing Paul of preaching a message like this. So here I'm connecting chapter 3 and what we're seeing here in chapter 6. Some were accusing Paul of preaching this sort of message. Since God makes good come from evil, we should do evil that good may come. Do you see the logic? Since God makes good come from evil, we should do evil that good may come. There's a kind of logic there. That's the sort of thing that Paul is being criticized for. So that's what you're preaching, Paul. Come on. That's the objection that Paul is dealing with as he thinks about the Jewish lawkeeper who rejects the gospel. That's the first person, the legalist. The quintessential law-keeping, or at least thinking he or she does, Jew who is refuting Paul's gospel. But second, there is the person who actually thinks this way. So we've dealt with the legalist, but now we see the person who actually thinks this way. They appear quite happy to embrace Paul's gospel of God's grace in Christ, but the conclusion they draw from it is entirely wrong. So here I'm going to the other form of bad theology. If you're tracking with me, we're looking at bad theology. We've seen the first form of bad theology, and that is the legalist. The legalist who just cannot accept this message of free grace. And now we're looking at the person who is just jumping up and down, clapping about this message of free gospel grace. They're quite happy to embrace it, but the conclusion that they draw from it is entirely erroneous. It is entirely wrong. They say something like this. Wow, isn't God's grace so amazing and incredible? The more we sin, the more we see his grace shine. The more we see it on display. So let's just give free reign to sin. Let's just continue in it so that grace may be magnified. You know, the more we sin the more grace, that precious grace of God, the more that grace of God will abound over it. Sounds good in one way, right? It's rotten. This is what Paul is slanderously accused of preaching. Paul himself accused of preaching this in chapter 3, verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Paul himself has been accused of having this very theology. And now he is actually refuting it. According to this view, it's not just that we may sin. Listen to this. It's not just that we may sin freely because of God's abounding grace, which is bad enough. But that we should sin freely in order to put God's grace on display. Man. Look at the way he magnifies his grace through my sin. And then as the person sins, he thinks or she thinks, man, God's going to get some glory from this one. It's a big one. Now you may be thinking that this is pretty far-fetched, right? Nobody thinks this way. Paul is just attacking a hypothetical straw man here. No one would really think this way, right? Well, Listen to Jude 4, in the time of the apostles, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, and listen to how Jude describes them, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, lustful passions of the flesh. And deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So there clearly were people who advocated this sort of message. And they were wreaking havoc. We're not talking about a person or two on the fringes. We're talking about wolves. At all levels of the early Christian church who are infiltrating the churches and polluting it with this rotten parasite. That's the way James describes it. 
this was happening. And this just continued into the early church. If you read early church history, look at the first few centuries of the church, you see this in various heretical groups. You see some really strange theology for sure, but you also see this mindset working itself out. The spirit who inspired this knew that this was coming down the, down the road. But this is not just something that existed back then. This is not just first century stuff. This is not just second and third century stuff. It has always been a problem. Listen, Christian, this has always been a problem in the Christian church. The issue is antinomianism. This idea of anti-law. Just full on, outright. One theological dictionary defines antinomianism in this way. Antinomianism so stresses Christian freedom from the condemnation of the law that it underemphasizes the need of the believer to confess sins daily and to pursue sanctification earnestly. It may fail to teach that sanctification inevitably follows justification. So here's the thing. This sort of thing is everywhere. This sort of thing is everywhere in Christian circles today. It's all over the place. At least functionally. Right? So it may not be explicitly taught. It may not be explicitly published or spread, it may not even be explicitly and overtly thought in one's own mind. But the deception of it, present in action nonetheless, it's a real thing. And it's a real scourge on the church of Jesus Christ. So what is Paul's response? To this anti-sanctification theology. To this ungodliness. What is his response to this teaching? Whether it take the form of legalistic opposition to the gospel as in our first person. Or licentious rejection of sanctification. The answer comes in verse 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's this answer. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, his answer is an overwhelmingly emphatic no way. Absolutely not. God forbid. May the thought perish. And just... Various ways you could say the same thing. Absolutely not. And this is followed by the big picture reason. He gives the big answer, then he explains it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now he's going to go on to explain what this means, but I want us to just consider this for a moment. Before we go any further, this is one of the defining aspects of Christian identity. Let me say that again. Paul puts this as a, if not at this point in his argument, the defining aspect of Christian identity. Which means if you had an identification card, like a license or a military ID or a passport or whatever else, and you pulled that thing out and you held it up, In big, bold, black letters, it would say, dead to sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. That is Christian identity. A Christian is someone who has died to sin. So before we go further and get into the details of all of this, right off the bat, here at the gate, let's just ask this question. Each of us does... That describe me. There are a lot of things that I could say as a Christian, that you could say as a Christian about ourselves. 
But I'm asking you to ask that question of yourself. Have I died to sin? Now obviously more meat needs to be put on those bones. But just asking the question helps us to navigate how we really understand what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one we sang to earlier. Hallelujah. Praise the Son of God. That one. To really be his people is to be dead to sin. So that's the first bad theology. He exposes bad theology in those first two verses. But now we go to verses 3 to 5 for the vivid imagery. And we'll finish here today. Verses 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So here he's explaining what he means by dead to sin. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. These are beautiful verses. These verses introduce an idea that is explained further in the following verses. So today I just want to get at the heart of Paul's answer to the opening question. He's going to spend a lot of verses unpacking this, and there's a lot of repetition, especially in these early verses in chapter 6. But what I want to do today is just set it up. It's, it's kind of introducing what he's going to go on to explain further in the remaining verses of the chapter. The big idea here is this. Union and identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the big idea that Paul is driving home in verses 3 to 5 is union and identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is what it means to be a Christian. You're not a Christian if that's not true for you. Let me summarize it this way. We have died to sin in that we have been united with Christ who himself died for sin. So we've died to sin in that we have been united with Christ who died for sin. As Christians, we have moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. As we are joined to Christ, who physically died and was raised from the dead for sins in our place, we similarly have died to the old life And been raised to newness of life in Christ. We've died to the old life of sin. Characterized by sin. To a new life. That is newness of life in Christ. The old life in Adam. We've died to that. We've died to that. The new life in Christ now defines us. And here's the the power. These aren't just. These aren't just objective realities. Let me say that. This is, this is really important. It's not just that this is sort of a label that you need to think yourself into. This is power in you, Christian, in you, dwelling in you, the power of the living God by the Spirit. This is real. This is lived. The same glorious Power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us who live now in resurrection life. Listen to the way Paul describes it in, in, as he describes his prayers in Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. He describes what he's praying for the believers and he, and he speaks about the immeasurable, just listen to the language. It speaks for itself. The immeasurable greatness Of his power toward us who believe. There's more. According to the working of his great might. The word might is enough, right, Paul? I mean, come on. No, it's great might. It's great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 
The power that raised Christ from the dead. The, the very power that is itself the glory of the Father, the expression of God's glory. That power is in the believer. The power of sin has been knocked away. It's been drop kicked to the ground, slammed, smushed, and been replaced by this power in the Spirit. Finally, this newness of life which comes out of deadness to sin ultimately results in our future resurrection from the dead. So it is this very power in us by which we live this new life, by which we've died to sin and are living this new life, this very power is itself going to be consummated in our resurrection from the dead one day. That resurrection life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let me tell you this. If you've died with Christ to sin, you're going to rise. That's the logic that Paul's getting at. If you've died to sin with Christ, oh, be so sure, you will rise. You can celebrate Easter this year and every day and every hour of your life. Truly from the heart because you've died to sin You've been united with Christ in that you will be raised one day through his resurrection. And the converse is true as well. If you have not died to sin, you have no hope of rising with Christ on that day. You have no hope of being raised from the dead. You should be scared to death to die. Fear of death abides Fear of death has been removed for those who've died to sin with Christ. To use the language of Hebrews. Fear of death reigns if you have not died to sin. This is the theology of these verses. This is the theology that undergirds our Christian identity and our sanctification. This is the theology that that undergirds and empowers and informs our hatred of sin and our pursuit of holiness. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to get in your head and get in your heart if you are to pursue holiness. This is the, the fuel that drives a sanctified life. The truth is important. This is truth for life to use Alistair Begg's language. But interestingly, Paul ties all of this to baptism. And that's where I'm going to finish up today. Paul ties all of this to baptism. He associates all of this with baptism. And it kind of leaves us scratching our heads a little bit. At least to some degree it should. Now, some have mistakenly concluded that baptism itself saves. Baptismal regeneration is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. That there is a, a salvific power in baptism itself. And that would be a misunderstanding of Paul's message. That would be to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He has just spent, I mean, just think about it. You don't need to go any further than this to know that's, that's wrong. He has just spent several chapters explaining that we are justified by faith alone, right? I mean, he's just spent four chapters explaining that it is only by faith that we are declared right with God. By nothing we do. How in the world could he go from that to now saying that baptism is something we must do in order to be saved? That it, is a, it, it's a, it's a, it has salvific power. God looks at us and says, okay, they, they've been baptized. Righteous before me. No, only faith does that. Paul's clear about that in Romans 1 to 4. Nothing can be added to that to render us right with God, to remove condemnation. That is obvious from 
the context. But while baptism does not justify, does not convert us, it is nonetheless deeply, listen to this, you can't run from this. It is nonetheless deeply associated with our conversion in the New Testament. Wherever you read. It serves as the initiation into the Christian life. And it makes sense of Pentecost when Peter preaches this powerful sermon and they're cut to the heart and you're expecting him to say, I don't know, fill in the blank. Somebody asks you, what must I do to be saved? Maybe you, you read uh, Acts 2.38 and, and you're left scratching your head like, Peter, you could have said that a little better. I mean, I don't know that I would have said it that way. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whoa, it sounds a little bit like uh, that, that's, that it's a work that needs to be done. You, you want to belong to Jesus? Well, you come on over here. You don't need to go over there and be circumcised. So that's good news. But you need to come over here and, and be baptized and then, and then you, you'll have it. You'll have what you need, right? Just kind of leaves us scratching our head. Well, I think we should understand these passages together. Baptism is deeply associated with Christian conversion. And that is why Paul essentially uses baptism here. Listen to this. He uses baptism here as a stand-in for being a Christian. That's what he's doing. Being baptized into Christ. He's using the language of the ordinance of water baptism, immersion in water. He's using that language as a stand-in for Christian identity. That tells you something weighty about baptism. doesn't make it salvific, but it makes it significant. What Paul is doing here is relating the imagery of baptism to our death to sin and resurrection to new life. So here's where I've been getting. This is where we'll finish up. What Paul has been doing here is relating the imagery of baptism to our death to sin and resurrection to new life. It's interesting what commentators do with this passage. And what they do with it is because infant baptism has dominated the history of the Christian church. But it appears obvious here that the imagery of baptism, the ordinance of baptism, has at its meaning that it elucidates, exposes, shines forth the reality of our union and identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. No, this passage is not about baptism. But we get insight in this passage about the nature of baptism. What baptism is. What it is meant to show. What it is meant to symbolize. It is a picture of Christian identity, Christian union with Christ. We are immersed, we are submerged, and we are brought up out of the water. And it is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection, united to Christ and identified with him. We see the same thing in Colossians 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Once again, it's interesting what commentators do with biblical passages when it doesn't quite square with their theology. Paul is pointing his reader back to their baptism. That is essentially what Paul is doing. He's pointing his reader back to their baptism and asking them to consider the meaning behind the symbol. He's saying, you guys were baptized, right? Hello? Hello? Don't you understand what that means? Don't you understand who you are? Your baptism showed you who you are. 
the wonderful thing about baptism. When we do it, it's, it's proclamation of the gospel. It shows forth what's happened when a person gets saved. Of course, you can't continue in sin, Christian. Come on. You died to it. Don't you remember your baptism? That's Paul's logic here. That's, that's in the background of what Paul is saying. How you were buried with Christ and raised up to newness of life. Do you remember what the Holy Spirit did in you? And, and your baptism, right? When you were converted, you remember, remember you were buried and raised visually and that visualized what Christ had done in you? One of the questions that I ask parents if they want me to baptize their children, and this one I think can be a little controversial, so I'll just speak to it. You know, we, we here are a little more reluctant to baptize children, uh, s- smaller children in particular, but around the age of 11-ish is, is when we as elders currently have deemed it wise and by the way, there's no proof text on this. You know, we, we, I talk with, with parents about, about this a lot. And there are other churches who have struggled through this and, and uh, who try to discern what is the wise way to deal with childhood conversion in such a way that the right kind of affirmation is given to children, in such a way that they understand the gospel insofar as they can, and insofar as the fruit of conversion is discerned in the lives of those children. And so it's not a matter of proof texting, it's a matter of pastoral wisdom in many ways. And so it has been a challenging question for us, and, and I would say it's one that we are still wrestling through, but, but in principle, as it currently stands, we, we want to wait a little bit with children to let that flesh itself out. And one of the ways that I kind of bring this home to the parent, when I sit down with a parent, which I've done several times, one of the ways I try to bring this home to the parent is I ask the parent this question. I read Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, and I ask this simple question. Has that happened to your child? Because if that hasn't happened to your child, what we're doing when we baptize them is is really meaningless and it's also dangerous. It's dangerous to them and their spiritual health. It's dangerous to the body witnessing that baptism. So what I say, has that happened to your child? And if there's confidence from the parents that that has happened to my child, and I sit down with the child, and, and, it's, and it's clear insofar as it can be clear, right? Not a little theologian, but insofar as it can be clear that that's happened to them, and we discern that as elders as we talk with them, then baptism as a symbol of this reality makes sense. Otherwise, I think there are problems. But... This is not an easy question. I just hope that all of you as parents will understand uh, that as elders, we, we deeply care about the salvation of your kids. And we deeply care about th- them having a, a right-based assurance of salvation. We deeply care about their perseverance in the faith. And we deeply care about their understanding of the gospel. So please know that as we walk through this with you. In the weeks ahead, we'll dig deeper into these ideas and see more what it looks like to be dead to sin. So I haven't really defined that fully this morning. We've gotten a sense of understanding union and identification with Christ. But Paul's going to go on. He's talking about living a sanctified life in union with Christ. And chapter 6 is going to have so much to say on that topic. But this morning, I want to leave you with this which may sound a very strange message to you, but I want to leave you with this. Live your baptism. Live your baptism. Live out the truth that was visualized when you were baptized. Galatians 2.20. May this be the heartbeat of our lives this week. And every week from now until we die, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray that it would settle well in our hearts and minds and grow our understanding and our pursuit of holiness. We pray now for the Lord's Supper. We give you thanks for these symbols, this other ordinance, once again, that visualizes such precious truths regarding our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.